What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Election Day 2020, and everyone is on edge. There's going to be a significant portion of the population that doesn't accept the results of this. Social media are towing the line between publisher and platform extra carefully today as they attempt to curb the spread of misinformation. Facebook's former chief security officer, Alex Stamos. If Mark Zuckerberg says something as a Facebook employee and it's on Facebook, Facebook is responsible for it. What Facebook is not responsible for is for what the president says and for them carrying the president's content. And an option to minimize the chaos as we await election results. In an interview original to this podcast, The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern explains why for her, any social media is too much social media. I now encourage you not to share because again, there's so much chaos and Misinformation is the biggest issue on these platforms right now. Plus, political home stretch, but what about the coronavirus pandemic? Dr. Scott Gottlieb. It's a very grim couple of months that we face. I think this is the last sort of acute phase of this pandemic that we need to go through and things will get better in 2021. It is the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, November 3rd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. It's here. It's election day in the U.S. And no, this is not the theme from TV's The West Wing. We can't afford that. But it should put you in the mood for an historic day. Nearly 100 million voters have already cast early ballots in the race of President Donald Trump versus Democratic challenger Joe Biden. Trump and Biden made their final arguments to the American people in swing state rallies last night. We made history together four years ago, and tomorrow we're going to make history once again. We're still in the battle for the soul of America. Decency, honor, respect. You better get out there and vote tomorrow. I will be so angry. I'll never come back to Michigan. I'll never come back. I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. For months, CNBC has been bringing you exclusive data from our States of Play battleground polls. Today, the final read on those six key states. Former Vice President Joe Biden has a lead among likely voters in each of the states we're tracking. Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Those likely voters said the top issues facing the country were the economy, the pandemic, and political corruption. As millions of voters continue to line up outside polling sites in what is expected to be record turnout, we are all anxious, on edge. The sight of plywood being put up over windows from Washington to New York to LA is an ominous sign. So many of us, all of us, are wondering when the election results will come. The first polls close on the East Coast at 7 p.m. Tuesday and the last after midnight Eastern. It will be a critical period as America makes its choice and waits for the answer and how that might ultimately impact business, our economy, the markets. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I don't know what the market action yesterday means, what it means today. Um, 
it's only get, you know, these are small moves because we always point that out. We're talking about the, if a two-day 800-point gain is 3%, right? We, last week, what did we lose? About 6%. We lost 1,800. Yeah, six percent. Yeah, so, points. I think so, six point four percent. Yeah. So get and, and three. So I don't know what that means. Um, I don't know. Things have seemed to get tighter. So the idea that that it, it's it's going to be easier to find out what happens tonight. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the, I don't know what the market moves from last week's mint either. You know. No. If I, that's, that's what I mean. So you had that last mean. week. I don't know what so last week. It's hard to get yeah. too excited. I mean, my my default reaction is that either the Senate might, you know, might be safer than people think. If I, if I invested and if I had money I, and I knew it was going to be a, a, a blue Senate and Joe Biden, I would, be, I would not want to stay long. I don't buy the stimulus thing. I don't buy that the stimulus offsets all the regulatory issues and taxes that, that we're talking about. For my own money, I'd, I'd definitely, uh, you know, we'll see. I guess I got some mutual funds. I'll have to make some decisions depending on <laughs> what happens. But it uh, might be too late. I might be too late by that. And Joe, even you, I, Sorkin, have made that, that point about, you know, we're in a weak economy and raising corporate taxes and, you know, green new deals and I think everything raising, else. As you know, I think, raising corp, I think raising corporate taxes in the midst of a pandemic is tough. I'm not sure that I feel the same way about raising individual taxes. But I was going to make a, a different point around uh, those that are supporting Biden because they like Biden and those that are supporting Biden because uh, they don't like Trump, which is to say that if Biden were to win, and I don't want to jump to conclusions, but if he were to win, it's going to make it that much more challenging, frankly, for him to pull off whatever you believe his agenda is ultimately going to be. Because as, as we're looking at it right there, the rationale for why he was supported is, is to some degree different than uh, previous right. presidents in certain cases where presidents thought, where they felt that there was a mandate, where there was a right. national but mandate so for a particular perverse. policy. That's so perverse. So, uh, that, that, that may be. I'm, I'm no, just suggesting. because you're saying the market's doing a little better because he's probably not going to be able to do any of that stuff. I mean, that's so perverse. You know, he'll <laughs> I mean, probably be prevented I mean, from look, these negative policies. Gridlock in Washington has been seen as a good thing. Right. You don't want either side taking it too far to their base. And, and that's been the reason that the divided government has, seen, has been seen as a friendly one to the markets. Obviously, this time around, it's a little different. You right. do need to get something done, something passed stimulus-wise. And I think that will happen either way when there's a new Congress, you know, no matter who's elected on this. There is going to be some move. It's a question of how big that package will right. be. But there is so much anxiety. Oh, anxiety. Yes, anxiety. Every, almost every headline talks about anxiety. And I went home yesterday, and you know, my son's I go, I'm anxious. Go, I'm so anxious. There's just a lot of anxiety. Yeah. There's a lot, and it's well, it's, it's, it's unease when you see buildings being boarded up. When you hear I think we're going to get a shot of that too. Yeah. If either side doesn't like who who won. I, I mean, that's that's concerning. Like, that's that's not normal. I can't remember an election cycle ever where uh, you I, saw things like I, this I, happening. This that's, is where we get into a dangerous uh, discussion because, like I said yesterday, I don't think all those golf carts from the villages. I don't think they're going to be you know, looting and rioting. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying one side or the other on this, Joe. I would say that both sides. Well, have, you have to. Have, you can't really say tendency one, on the on the far edges of it. I don't like, think I, I, I just think you, you know what? You can't be politically correct and say without saying that either side might do it. But I just don't really think it's the same it's thing. Been, I'd be much true. more worried. I, I do think it's true. I'm sorry. You think that, Joe, you think that I, they, I, and Becky, see, I knew I, we were going to get I, here. Look, Wait, I, you think that, I, that Trump supporters look, I, I are going to be? There have been pro, I think there have been protesters that, that I think there were protests over the summer that you know that I think uh, that were uh, taken over effectively by looters. 
Um, and I think that's, and they were co-opted, and I think that's a terrible right. thing. Absolutely. Right. But I also think, I think it also should be 100% clear that the quote-unquote militias in this country historically have not been, uh, uh, you know, uh, bastions of Democrats. It's just, it's just not, it's just not the case. Um, you know, when you look at the people who are walking around with guns, when you look at the the cars, and 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 we talked about it yesterday, the the, the trucks trying to pull uh, uh, the Biden right. bus off the road or whatever was happening, that that that's that's at a different level. And and I would also suggest that there's a violence that's 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 truly suggestive of what of what that is, which is very different than. And that's so why I say I can't, I'm not condoning looting. I think looting's terrible, and I, the people who have co-opted these protests are terrible. But to put these in the same conversation, I really think is unfair. No, I'm saying that, that here's, here's boarding up, is, boarding up buildings that, in Paul. New York City and Chicago and places like that, I, you know, doing what oh, you're sure. saying is, I, is I, a I different type. I will give you that. I will this give is you that. the boarding up I will the buildings in the National Guard to Chicago. That's just the easiest and, pictures. Right. But that's just the easiest it, pictures that you're talking about. I, I will say that crazy... what concerns me is that Reuters Ipsos poll that says that four out of right. ten on both sides of this won't right. accept the results of the election. I don't know what the I think crazy that means militia that no matter types what happens do. here, this doesn't our unease doesn't go away. That there, there's going to be a significant portion of the population that doesn't accept the results of this, and right. that means that it's a it's a tough road from here. This is not something that ends today right. or tomorrow or next week. This is a, a problem of a divide in the country that needs to be resolved. Right. I, I don't think that, that the, the violence of choice of the crazy militia isn't the, the storefronts in, in New York City. I, I don't think. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll give you that. Right. I think Andrew still, under no circumstances will you acknowledge even, even that much. But anyway, uh, I, I don't know where I, the militia I, look, are going to operate. I think that, but I don't think it's as, I, I, don't, I, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't think all the old people you here's, see. Here's the those, one thing I will say. The, the, yeah. pe the people who like this, the people who like this chaos, it, it's Iran, it's China, it's Russia. It's those who want to see this kind of uh, discord disrupt our democracy, which is the greatest democracy on the planet. And that's what upsets me. I hope we can get past that. Yeah. A memo from White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Deborah Burks getting some attention this election morning. She writes that the U.S. is, quote, entering the most concerning and most deadly phase of this pandemic, and she calls for much more aggressive action. Joining us right now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner under President Trump. He's also a CNBC contributor, and he sits on the boards of both Illumina and Pfizer. And, and Dr. Gottlieb, um, what you've heard from Deborah Burks this morning, you agree with that? What do you think the action should be? Well, look, based on the reporting, I think it's consistent with what we've been saying, that we're entering a very difficult period with, with this pandemic. And this is probably going to be the densest phase of the pandemic. We're probably going to see um, significant spread across the entire United States in a confluent epidemic. Now, we're much better prepared to deal with it. So I don't think that we're going to see the excess death that we saw with the first wave of this pandemic when it struck New York. And there was a very dense epidemic in New York. But the sheer fact that we're going to be infecting so many people right now um, is probably going to mean that the death tolls get well above 1,000 for a sustained period of time. And so it's a very grim couple of months that we face. I think that this is the last sort of acute phase of this pandemic that we need to go through, and things will get better in 2021, but we need to hunker down and be careful over the next couple of months. The, the deaths may be a little better under control this time around, but it's the hospitalizations that, that really were the cause for, for why the economy shut down so drastically, because so much 
of those early cases back in March and April were concentrated in the Northeast and places like New York City. It was overwhelming the hospitals that was the huge concern. Is that a concern this time around, or, or is it different because these cases are more spread out across the country? No, it's going to be a concern. There'll be parts of the country that get very pressed. Um, and the challenge is that because you have a more diffuse epidemic across the whole country, you're not going to be able to backstop that many local regions that have very dense epidemics. Right now, there are 14 states where you have more than 200 hospitalizations per 1 million people. That's the loose threshold that, uh, that the Europeans used to instigate the measures that they took, the stay-at-home orders. Now, I don't think we're going to go to that here in the United States. I don't think you'll see broad stay-at-home orders. But it is a measure that the hospitals are getting pressed. Morgan Stanley put out a good report today documenting the level of hospitalizations in different states. And that's going to continue to go up. These are still early days with this uh, this wave of virus across the United States. I think it's going to continue to build over the next three weeks, and Thanksgiving will probably be an inflection point where the spread will be so diffuse that the month of December, I think we're going to have to take more targeted measures to try to slow down certain activities, shut down certain congregate settings where we know spreads occurring. Again, not the broad stay-at-home orders. There's no popular support for that. We're not talking about lockdowns in the United States, but something akin to what New York did where when they had outbreaks within certain communities, they took some targeted measures in those communities. I think you're likely to see a similar thing play out in other states. Dr. Gottlieb, I want to go back to this uh, Dr. Burke's uh, memo. Is this too little, too late? Uh, you've been warning, making these warnings on our air now uh, for months. Uh, Dr. Fauci has been public for months. Uh, Dr. Burks has not been public uh, virtually at all. In fact, this was an internal memo that appears to have now been leaked just within days of the election, when uh, to some degree you could argue that perhaps there are people even inside the White House uh, that believe the president is not going to win re-election. Well, look, I know Dr. Burks a little. Um, she tends to give her, her guidance privately, and I think that's what she's been doing. This one memo leaked, but my understanding is there were multiple memos, and I think maybe daily memos, that really uh, mirrored this. And the fact that they didn't leak before this is, I think, suggestive of the fact that she does give her guidance privately. If you've listened to what she's been saying when she goes around to the states, it's consistent with what was in that memo, what was reported to be in that memo. So I think her advice has been consistent all the way through. Um, she just, you know, is an internal advisor who doesn't speak publicly on a national platform about these. And in some, in some respects, uh, it, her role's been changed. She was more out front earlier, but other people have taken that sort of out front role for the White House more recently. If that's the, if that's the case, fair to say that the president uh, is not listening to her? It doesn't appear that she's briefing the president with the same frequency that she used to. And she has said that in the press, or that's been reported in the press. And so I don't know whether he's listening to her or not. I think her role has changed. She's she seems to be t playing a much more outside role, directly working well, no, with but states given the, given, and not that sort of public. Given the things that she's saying and given the things that oh. the president is saying, it, it doesn't matter whether she's briefing him or not. He's clearly not taking whatever that advice might otherwise be, correct? Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that the White House strategy is different than the strategy being outlined by Debbie Burks and Tony Fauci at this point. I think that's, that's clearly apparent. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, I guess the next question is, what happens with this election day? Does, does it matter? What, what are the strategies going to look like from a national perspective, one way or the other? Well, I think that the acute phase of this is really going to play out over the next couple of the months. And by the time a new president Before is inaugurated see, yeah. in January, whether, that's, yeah. whether it's Donald Trump or it's, it's Joe Biden, I think that we're going to be probably peaking in terms of the epidemic. And so 
you know, whether or not the strategy is going to change depending on whether the president's reelected or not, uh, I suspect that's not going to be the case. I think that the president's going to follow the course that he's going to follow regardless of the outcome of this election. And if Biden is elected today, um, then, you know, he's going to be coming in at a point to try to mitigate some of the challenges that we face in this epidemic as we come out of it and making sure that we don't have a resurgence in infection, which I think there's things we can do to try to prevent uh, 2021 from being another difficult year and get kids back in school. I mean, that's the first thing we well, should do is try to push that was my next question out to local districts. But yeah, there's what, a lot we could be doing there. The schools over the next few months, because because look, well, at look our, I think, kids are in school. Right. So I think schools that are open right now are going to have challenges remaining open, because even though the kids are at lower risk and lower risk of transmitting and contracting the infection and having a bad outcome, when you have a dense epidemic in a local district and your hospital system's extremely pressed, you reach for every tool you can, and closing the schools is going to be one tool. So I think they'll, they'll be challenged. Maybe they'll be able to stay open. I think we should prioritize that. Schools that haven't opened yet, I think it's going to be hard for them to open against this backdrop. Now, that said, I think as we come out of this in the winter, sometime in January, maybe February, the first thing we should try to do is get the schools reopened. There's no reason kids can't have a spring session and maybe a late winter session as we come out of this national epidemic. We should be getting resources into schools right now, testing in schools that can't socially distance, that are austere environments, um, you know, targeted aid to schools to get proper protective equipment for teachers targeted assistance to schools, particularly schools that don't have a lot of money to try to retrofit HVAC systems where appropriate um, and implement measures to try to uh, allow for distance learning where they have to go to hybrid models. There's a lot we could be doing to, to provide assistance and also more information on what worked and what didn't. We now have a lot of experience in this country with schools that have been open, but I can't tell you whether schools that use masks did better, whether schools that went to hybrid models did better, because we have not collected that information on a systematic basis and made it available. Some people have done it, and I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal this weekend in North Carolina, but the federal government has not collected and shared that information, and that would really help provide confidence to districts. Doctor, if you were uh, still undecided today and we're going to vote simply on strategy about attacking COVID-19 and trying to bring our economy back, uh, which candidate do you think has the better strategy? Well, look, this has been, become a very political issue, oddly enough. I mean, even wearing masks has become a, a political issue and divides along political lines. So I think the answer to that question, Andrew, is going to be, what are your underlying politics? Because COVID strategy, um, quite remarkably, seems to break down along political lines, even though I think it should transcend those kinds of considerations. I'm asking you for, as, a, as, a met, as a doctor. Yeah, look, I've made no secret of my view that we need to take a more aggressive posture here. And I think what Biden prescribes with respect to trying to push out testing, it's worked in other countries and not just South Korea, not just countries that use aggressive tracking and tracing and electronic surveillance tools that we wouldn't be able to use in this country. They've also done it in regions of Italy and Europe very successfully, again, on a localized basis. I mean, the Europeans have had as much trouble as we have implementing national strategies and, and getting you know, the population to wear masks and do simple things. But when we do these things, when we make testing broadly available and accessible and free and cheap for people, um, you are going to turn over more infections, and that's going to be the key to controlling. And this is how the entire Pacific Rim really has controlled the infection. Uh, I would urge the Trump administration to adopt this posture as well. Dr. Gottlieb, want to thank you. Good to see you. Thanks a lot.
Next on Squawk Pod, Alex Stamos, former chief security officer at Facebook, draws a very thin line between social media and traditional media on a high stakes day of content. The president of the United States gets at the podium of the White House and says, I won or I'm losing because of fraud and then has no evidence of that, then that's going to be covered on CNBC, on NBC, on MSNBC, on all your partner stations live. Now, what we want from the media is context to be added, which is what now the social media companies are trying to do themselves to. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. After Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube were used to manipulate voters four years ago, the companies are working extra hard to protect their platforms and their users. Julia Borson joins us now with a look at the steps that they're taking. I, uh, I think we've seen some of those steps in the past couple of weeks, Julia, but anyway, go ahead. Well, Joe, it's not just about preventing voter manipulation, but also about preventing the spread of misinformation that could spark civil unrest after the polls close. Now, Facebook's been preparing for today's vote for four years. We went into its war room in 20, for the 2018 midterms two years ago, but this year its election operations center is virtual. It has hundreds of people meeting five times a day and smaller teams meeting more frequently as part of that operation. Now, Facebook will either remove a post if it incites violence, uses militarized language, or has voter suppression effects, or it will label posts, especially those from politicians claiming victory. And it will show users a notification saying no winner has been chosen until results are verified. After the election, Facebook is suspending all political advertising and issue advertising to reduce misinformation about election results. Now, Twitter, which, unlike Facebook, didn't accept political ads for this presidential political season, it will label and hide tweets with false claims by politicians and influencers. Users will have to click past those warnings. Twitter is also linking to accurate information atop of the news feed. Now, after the election, Twitter will label or remove tweets claiming victory before a race is called by authoritative sources. And then YouTube says it will pull down videos that interfere with the voting process no matter who posts them. It will also promote news from established outlets. Now, following the election, YouTube is also halting political advertising and promoting what it calls a fact-check panel above election-related search results. So the heat is on all three of these companies, and they've been spending so much money and time, Andrew, over the past four years to prevent any issues around this election. Julia, thank you for that report. Um, millions of Americans will be glued to social media tonight for the latest election results, but there's a very good chance we won't have all the votes tallied for days. And according to the latest CNBC Change Research State of Play survey, only 29 percent of likely voters think we'll know who won tonight, with the majority believing It'll take up to a week to know for sure. For more on the challenges facing social media tonight and in the coming days, I want to welcome Alex Stamos. He's the former chief security officer at Facebook. He led the company's investigation into platform manipulation following that 2016 election. Alex, it's great to see you this morning. You know, Julia just went through all of the efforts that the big social media companies uh, have undertaken 
And the question is, is this going to buy them any goodwill, given the larger debate that seems to be around them, whether it comes to uh, 2.30 or potentially even breaking them up? So I think the companies have done a, a pretty good job of responding to specifically foreign interference, uh, as we saw it in 2016 and a little bit of 2018. Uh, and as Julia talked about, there's these large war rooms, there's teams that are searching out for potential foreign actors. Um, and we've also seen a lot of cooperation with government entities, such as the FBI, uh, to shut down this stuff proactively. There's a broad political consensus that we don't want foreign actors, such as uh, the Russian Internet Research Agency, which is one of the groups that was involved in 2016, uh, interfering in our elections. What's happening for the companies now is they're bumping up against the lack of consensus of what their responsibility is domestically. Um, and it is in the domestic sphere that they're going to have most of their problems today, because the vast majority of the disinformation our team is tracking as part of the Election Integrity Partnership uh, is coming from domestic sources, in many cases, verified domestic sources. So you're not even talking from the grassroots, but a lot of election disinformation that are being pushed by known influencers with very large platforms um, who are able to speak out to large numbers of people via social media and then inject their ideas into kind of the overall media ecosystem. Well, so let me ask you, you know, just last night, uh, President Trump uh, tweeted about uh, Pennsylvania, uh, raised the prospect uh, that, that the vote is, is not going to be proper and the possibility of civil unrest. Twitter uh, put, put a... Um, a label on it. Is that appropriate? Is it not? Does it politicize things? What do you do about it? So in my opinion, it's appropriate. I think the model that most of the companies are taking when it comes to the president and his official surrogates are to treat the, the things that the president and his campaign says as newsworthy, but then to use their own First Amendment rights to label that content with additional context. Um, and so I think you will probably see this today multiple times, either when the president does things like uh, imply that there's going to be political violence, which I think is completely inappropriate. Uh, it, the, the job of the president is to unite the country, not to pour gasoline on the fire. Um, and to imply that there's going to be violence if he doesn't get his way is a totally inappropriate thing. The companies have a First Amendment right to their own speech. And for them to not take his content down, but to label it, to say, we disagree with this and we believe it's either not factual, factual or it's dangerous, is totally appropriate. Um, the challenge is going to be if if the president declares victory prematurely tonight. And what we've seen is from Twitter and Facebook is they not. both said that if it hasn't been called by a certain group of well-respected predictors um, as being done tonight, which is quite a large possibility that we won't have an answer tonight, then they will label his content. Uh, but this is going to be a challenge for all of social media and the media. The truth is, is this is a, a problem for the traditional media as well. If the president of the United States gets at the podium of the White House and says, I won, um, or I'm losing because of fraud and then has no evidence of that, then that's going to be covered on CNBC, on NBC, on MSNBC, on all your partner stations live. Now, what we want from the media is context to be added, which is what now the social media companies are trying to do themselves too. Okay, but Alex, here's the issue. And, and I don't disagree with you about what you're talking about being appropriate or, or inappropriate, but this gets to this issue of the, you've talked about the social media companies engaging in their First Amendment rights. The second that they start engaging in their First Amendment rights, they start to look much more like a publisher, much more like a media organization unto themselves. And thus far, they have had liability protection. And so the second that they start jumping into these conversations in the way even that you've described, do you believe it changes the dynamic? 
So it legally does not. So to be very clear, the law everybody's talking about, Section 230, does not say publisher or platform. That is not something that's in there. What Section 230 says is that companies that carry other people's speech do not have civil liability for that speech in the case in that you can sue the actual speaker, but you can't sue the intermediary. Um, and I, I think the companies are responsible for the speech that they personally put out. Um, and so if, if Mark Zuckerberg says something as a Facebook employee and it's on Facebook, Facebook is responsible for it. What Facebook is not responsible for is for what the president says and for them cover carrying the president's content. And so we got to be really careful right. about disambiguating the speech that they're carrying versus the speech that is actually from their own employees. And in the situation where they're labeling this stuff, there's a pretty well established that they have a First Amendment right to do so, just like CNBC has the right to carry the president live, right. but then to add your own editorial voice. Um, and if, if they say something that's wrong in their own voice, voice, then they will be legally liable. But doing things like labeling the president's tweets are cer almost certainly not going to have any legal liability because that's core protected speech under the First Amendment. Okay. Alex Damos, uh, great having you uh, with us on Election Day. I'm sure we'll be talking to you over the next several days uh, as we see things play out. Appreciate your perspective this morning. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Next on Squawk Pod, social media continued. It's a high stakes, high anxiety, high media volume day in the U.S. But when is it all too much? Journalist Joanna Stern on why she's stopped doom scrolling and why a break from social media might not be a bad idea for you either. The chaos on these platforms is, well, going to be chaos or is chaos. Why should I contribute to that chaos? Even if I share a couple of things or I add a couple of jokes, what does that do? What does sharing really do during this time? This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. So, Election Day is here. How will you be spending the hours or maybe days that we wait for all the votes to be counted? A contentious election? A deadly pandemic? We are living in the United States of anxiety. I caught up with Joanna Stern, The Wall Street Journal's personal technology columnist and a CNBC contributor, about her unique coping strategy. Election Day 2020. It's here. It's been months, years, feels like decades in the making. And social media has gotten only bigger in this election cycle. Many people will be sharing the jokes, the memes, also the breaking news across social media. You have decided not to be one of those people. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, I, ha I am not on social media right now. I have no idea what's going on there. It is uh, very anxiety inducing, but also freeing. I decided to do this for two reasons. One is personal. I just 
found that through this last year of, um, how do I say this nicely? Um, and we can't curse on this podcast, I don't think. So let's say collective national anxiety, very, very high collective national anxiety. I don't, um, I take my anxiety out there and I, I spend a lot of time doom scrolling. And that's the, the process of just not being able to look away from your feed and basically thinking that the next thing is going to be worse or you're going to get some good news or you're going to get some worse news. And so you just keep scrolling. And so I did this, well, on first end, for, for personal reasons that hopefully I just won't be addicted to looking at the, the feed for the next couple of days. The second was I felt like it was part of a greater good and the chaos on these platforms is well going to be chaos or is chaos. And we know that because the platforms themselves have been erecting walls and different rules and changing policies to make sure things go as okay as they possibly can go. And so why should I contribute to that chaos? Even if I share a couple of things or I add a couple of jokes, what does that do? What does sharing really do during this time? Mm-hmm. So you, how have you decided to keep away? You've literally gone to the phone, deleted Twitter, deleted Facebook and Instagram, or have you hid them away for returning to later? I will say that I started with the hiding process. And usually the hiding process works because I actually do this quite often. I try to take the occasional social media break, whether it be a weekend or a vacation. I think it's really good for anyone to do this at just various times of the year, especially this year. And so usually I hide the apps in a folder and then I remove them from the home screen and I turn off notifications and that works pretty well. This time I I had to delete, uh, I'll say it was Twitter and Instagram. It's just those two are very tough for me. Yeah. I spend a lot of late nights doom scrolling myself. Uh, It's, it's, it's part of the culture now in many ways. What if someone can't be as brave as you to delete or hide the apps? Do you have advice or maybe a user's guide for people who are still connected to social media in spite of better advice, but still want to be good citizens? Yeah. Well, first thing, you actually end up having a lot more free time when you don't have social media apps. <laughs> One thing to consider for everyone out there. I do have some advice. And look, if you don't want to leave social media and you that's how you get your news or that's how you communicate with friends. I totally understand that. This is not a judgment. I now encourage you not to share. And I encourage that because again, there's so much chaos and misinformation is the biggest issue on these platforms right now. False, inaccurate information is spreading and people believe it. And so Even some of us can believe that. I have definitely fallen for a manipulated video before. I have fallen for a tweet that was not real or had information. And I was like, oh my God, this just happened. And then five minutes later, it's like, actually, that that didn't happen. Uh, Somebody made that up and it just got, it went viral and you fell for it. So just don't share it because you're only perpetuating the situation here. You're, You're perpetuating sharing information that may be true or may not be true. And in these couple of days, why do we need even to risk that? If you can't do that and you still need to share, you have to, you have to do your homework. I have a question kind of on the flip side of this. Social media has been a way to raise awareness about instances of discrimination or voter suppression throughout the primary and, and early voting period. Um, what would you advise for communities wanting to use social media in a constructive way, particularly around the election. That stuff is so important. And again, this is not a social media is bad take. 
And again, this is not as social media is horrible for the world and we are all horrible people for it. There are so many good uses and causes that we can use these platforms for. That said, we have to remember that this is a public square, that this is a place where we are interacting with people. And so I would just say, number one thing is, is just don't be a jerk. Um, you know, write in a way that um, is, is authoritative and clear, but also that understands that there might not be people that agree with you. And if people come back at you, ignore if you can. This is the internet. All the, all the, all the same rules apply, you know, just don't troll. Right. When will you go back to social media? I have to go back this week. Um, I mean, the problem is we don't know when this election's over. Um, I really did not want to be sitting on the couch on Tuesday night and even into Wednesday, just you know, anxious and scrolling and just taking it all out on a, a finger swipe on, on a phone. Well said. Well said. Joanna Stern from The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's Squawk Pod for today. On our rundown tomorrow, we'll see. We don't know what the next few days will bring, but we'll guide you through whatever comes. For full election coverage, literally, we're broadcasting all night Tuesday. Tune in to CNBC. We're keeping you up to date on the results and what they mean for your pocket. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.